Hi, my name's Cooper Knowlton. And I'm Lee Bergstein. And we're the hosts of Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar. Tonight, our guest is Paul Castellero. Said that right? You did. Excellent. Absolutely. Did a great job. Podcast is over. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's very rarely pronounced, you know, correctly pronounced, so. Well, thank you. And Paul is the legal director of Centurion. And Centurion is the first organization in the world dedicated to the vindication of the wrongfully convicted. According to the website, since 1980, they've freed 61 men and women serving life or death sentences for crimes they didn't commit. I wonder if that number is even higher today. Uh, I think it's I think it's 61 is the correct 61. number. 61. And yeah. I also saw on your website it says that 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 represents 12,000 years or 1,200 years. 1,200. Excuse right, me, right. of life lost. Yeah, which it's, is a pretty it's crazy incredible. Number. I mean, you know, uh, in the last year we've in New Jersey we we uh, freed a. Uh, a man who was had done 24 years, you know, in uh, in well, Louisiana, we just freed a guy th- that had done seven years, and I have to remember all the uh, the numbers. Um, I mean, it's just an incredible amount of time and energy that goes into each one of these cases, and and you know, the the, the numbers are staggering. Tell us a little more about your role there. Well, I I, I was I was in private practice in uh, Hoboken for about 35 years. And I had a solo practice, and um, I kind of got tired of private practice and the grind of private practice. And any lawyer that's ever engaged in it is— We're in years the, two and three of private practice. Okay, well, you, we, you, you'll, we get, you'll get there. <laughs> but, but, you know, I had been I think we're, we're there already. Oh, yeah, there. That's why we drink at every, on every podcast episode. Yeah, oh, yeah, right, exactly. You're smarter than I was. <laughs> I, I stayed at it for 35 years. Uh, but, you know, I, I had been working with Centurion for all that time. I was like the, the lawyer on their very first case. And um, I just thought, you know, why don't I I'll do this as my way of getting out? And I pitched it. And, you know, they, of course, went for it because I was such a great catch, you know, that they <laughs> they agreed to do it. So. And are you primarily fundraising or lawyering? No, no or? I'm, pr- I'm primarily lawyering all the time okay. uh, uh, and not really fundraising other than, you know, I'll speak at you know, functions and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I am lawyering and it's, it's kind of fun because I'm only lawyering. I'm, I'm not dealing, I'm dealing with a whole bunch of business and I'm not dealing with the lights on. I'm not dealing with salaries. I'm not dealing with any of those things. It's kind of nice, you know, and it, and it's kind of just law. It really is just law. Right. What percentage of your time is being spent looking for new cases and what percent of your time is well, spent? Well, last week I was out in Seattle, uh, uh, you know, uh, Washington, and we were interviewing somebody who was down in Oregon and also investigating the case. So we spent the week doing that. Uh, we spend a lot of time, uh, you know, looking for cases. And the way we get cases is people write to us. And we have a, a, a pretty great group that uh, volunteers and, and a couple of lawyers that work up the cases. And we work them up, and then we say, hey, you know, what do we think of the case? And does it, you know, deserve some further, you know, investigation or looking at? And once we decide that, then we go and we want to talk to the, you know, obviously the person to see who they are and, uh, you know, just assess everything we can before we make a decision whether we should take the case or not. Sounds like you're logging a lot of rental car activity. Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm getting my names on the board and all that stuff. It's really really great. Wow. What a (laughs) private practice. You know, you would would walk. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us have every chance you get. Yeah, right. So, yeah. So it's kind of nice. That part of it's nice. Great. And I'm getting a lot of miles. So so take us back. Are you a New Jersey guy originally? No, no. I grew up in Washington Heights, upper Manhattan, right up the, you know, up the river here. Okay. Along this along this side. They called it I was on the west side, but it was really the east side. Because as the island goes up, the you know, the east disappears and it's just the west. I, I grew up in uh 189th Street between uh, uh Audubon and Amsterdam Amsterdam Avenue in Upper Manhattan. Okay. Washington Heights. Okay. Before we get too far, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention what we're drinking, since that's kind of the the, the feature. Totally, totally forgot. The yeah, feature totally forgot. aspect of this podcast. Uh, so tell us about what you chose as your drink of choice for tonight's pod. Uh, Tito's uh, vodka. Uh, um, I chose it because I was drinking uh, Kettle One, and uh, and I kept going into these various restaurants, and they would serve Tito's to me, and I kind of liked it. And then I actually 
saw in the liquor store. It's like 10 bucks cheaper. <laughs> I mean, I think it's as good. Yeah, I think it is, too. I, I really like it. No complaints so. about Tito's and the Rocks. No. With, with with some lemon. You asked for some lemon, too. Oh, yeah. No, I love the lemon. and Nice and ice cold. And it's really... It's kind of a really relaxing drink at the end of the day, really. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, nice. for, for your line of work, that's definitely important. Yes. Yes. The drink after work. <laughs> it's nice. Cooper, what do you think? Our, our resident... Uh, I enjoy it. alcohol. I like it. Really? I like it, yeah. Okay. Are you a Very vodka smooth. drinker? Not generally. Yeah, okay. I would say I have, if I'm drinking liquor, I think I drink tequila or mezcal the most. Oh, okay. Okay, right. And then, then maybe like bourbon or whiskey yeah, and then I, vodka right below that. Oh, okay. I used to drink a lot of wine, but it just got heavy and- <laughs> Sure. And I, so I yeah. got away from it. Yeah. I'm sure all the listeners are dying to hear my- Yeah, right. Your drinks. <laughs> my, yeah. my ranking of liquors. Can you power rank your top 20 <laughs> drinks- <laughs> so I'd say Pina, Shirley Pina Temple Colada first. is number one. Right. You're close. <laughs> so probably, you grow up. Is number one. Enough. You grow up on the Upper West Side, right? And you end up at law school at, at Rutgers. Rutgers. Yeah, I went to undergraduate at NYU. Okay. And then I uh, went to Rutgers. And did you think when you were at NYU that you wanted to go to law school? Was that uh, part of the plan? No, it took a long time for me to actually, you know, take school seriously. And I was in, uh, I was in, I was probably four years in, and I had about sixty credits or something like that. And I kind of woke up one day. I really woke up and said, "Holy <laughs> mackerel, <laughs> this is not working." I uh-huh. was kind of jockey and all that stuff. So you know, and 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 uh, and I just decided one day I I had to get out. Okay. And so I applied myself. So how and many got years, out? How many and then years I went to then NYU? I went to graduate school. For a year to, because I, you know, I thought I better get some credentials to get into law school. Gotcha. What'd you go to grad school? Then? I went to grad school at NYU, the, the School of Public Administration, and kind of was doing some urban planning stuff. But I never graduated. I just got my whatever thirty-four credits, whatever it was, and went off to law school. I think you needed sixty to graduate. And when you went to law school, did you have any idea in your mind of what kind of legal practice you wanted to have? No. No, I had none. I, I didn't really know. I just know I, I was, you know, we were, we were, this was the 60s, the late, you know, I, I started law school in 70 and it was kind of like change the world mentality. We were going to change the world. And a lot of people, there were a lot of people, I went to school at Rutgers in Newark and, and there, there were lots of people that had, were kind of, they weren't track people. They had, you know, taken time off. Um, they would tend to be older. There were a lot of like, you know, 24, 25 year olds there and and we were a lot of the people there were just really because they kind of thought they could do something positive okay so you said that you were uh woke up one morning kind of student at nyu what about at law school what kind of student were you oh it was great i loved it It was the first school i had ever attended that i really liked I, i i wasn't in love with school by any stretch of the imagination but i went to law school and i absolutely loved it why what about it i don't know i just you know, I actually was learning something. I actually think I thought I could apply to something. I loved it. I yeah. mean, I, I read everything, and I mean, I did the extra reading my first year. I I, I was into it, and uh, you know, I've heard you know lawyer after lawyer tell me how much they hated law school, and I'm like, uh, I'm an outlier, I think, and because uh, I really loved it. I loved law school. I almost want to go back to law school and take you with me. I, you know what? I had a dream. <laughs> I had a dream that I was back in law school, you know, kind of just refreshing myself for three years. And it was it was kind of strange, but I actually had this dream. But I really liked it, so, you know, it was great. It was a, Rutgers was really cutting edge at the time I went. Um, there were a lot of great, I met a lot of great people. I have friends that, you know, from law school that I get together with, you know, a couple times a year. Um, made really, you know, lifelong friends there. Um, and Rutgers was real cutting edge. They had they had a clinic program. Um, in my second year, we we participated in a brief uh, in U.S. versus U.S. District Court, which was that Nixon was claiming he had you know executive power to tap to tap domestic surveillance, uh, domestic t- terrorists or whatever they were called, domestic dissidents, and he didn't need a warrant. And, you know, so we participated in writing that brief. I mean, it was an incredible experience. That's great. Yeah. Did you, as as law school went on, did you get a better sense of what you wanted to do after law school? 
Oh yeah, my, at the end of my first year, I I got a job. I no, I didn't get a job. I got a I guess a grant with the ACLU, which is a pretty funny story because they had they had like four grants that they were giving out, and we had like four of us, and we tried to conspire so we could the couple of us so we could work together, and and I think it was on drawing straws or something. It was somehow there was a a lot that you had. A, it was luck on where you wound up, and I wound up with like kind of the short straw. And I wound up with this this uh, internship uh, at the ACLU, and at the ACLU I got assigned to this lawyer Morty Stavis, who became basically my mentor. And and Morty was in the ACLU was in the middle of litigating a case of a of a army deserter. This is during the Vietnam War now. An army deserter uh, who had been um, deserted years ago, like six or seven years ago, and there was a statute of limitations on desertion of five years, except in the time of war, then the statute of limitations was, was suspended. So we litigated the issue of, you know, since Congress hadn't declared war, that this really was, you know, barred by the statute of limitations. And, wow. you know, so it was kind of cool. What happened. And I met Morty, and, and Morty, then I wound up uh, getting a clerkship with him for my last two years. Uh, so the last two years, I, I, you know, worked, I don't know, 20 to 40 hours, depending upon what was going on and what I could do. And I kind of really learned, the, you know, kind of a lot of the practice of law. And uh, at the end of those uh, two years, when I, when I graduated after passing the bar, I went out to uh, Chicago. They were, they were uh, the Chicago 7 trial, I don't know, you know, during the Democratic National uh, convention in 1968, there was this big riot, and then when Nixon got elected, he indicted all these people for for that riot, right? Because he was going to come down hard. He was law and order, and they 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 went to trial and they got convicted and they got held in contempt by Julius Hoffman. It was Abby Hoffman, you know, uh, uh, Dave Dellinger, Bobby Seale, who was gagged at, during the trial, and, and a whole bunch of uh, uh, of people, and and. That case got over to the conviction for the conspiracy to commit, you know, whatever they were convicted of, terrorism or whatever it was, a rioting, conspiracy to riot. This was through the ACLU. You were, no, 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 this is, oh, I'm sorry. No, Morty, I, Morty was doing pro bono with the ACLU gotcha. for this case. Gotcha. And so I met him gotcha. and then he hired me on. Okay. You had and, me on the edge of my seat for the army desertion case. So what happened? Oh, oh, we, we, well, it was a habeas corpus petition. And I started learning habeas corpus law, which I do quite a bit of. And um, uh, we lost. But, but we, it was a big victory for us because the judge gave us, in those days you had to get a certificate of probable cause and to, to appeal the denial. Mm -hmm. And we got a certificate of probable cause to appeal the denial to the Third Circuit. And something happened with the case. I don't know. It never got litigated in the Third Circuit. But we were we we thought we had won because we got this probable cause certificate, right? And it was kind of a victory because he, you know, said it was a real issue whether or not you know the statute of limitations applied. So, but anyway, I went out and I did. We did the Chicago contempt trial in 1973, which was kind of cool. And very cool. Yeah, and then I I, I was working with this other guy. And we were. It turned out right before we're starting the trial, like the day of the the contempt trial was. It was only a judge-only trial because they said the penalties for each contempt wouldn't be wouldn't exceed six months. Therefore, you didn't have a right to a jury trial. And um, we were—I uh, was in charge with this other guy. Of they—they uh, they came across on the day of the trial, and they said, "Well, they have these tape recordings that the trial had been tape recorded, and nobody knew this." And so we we pulled out all the contempts, hmm. and the basic defense was, was that the judge you know, really instigated these contempts or, you know, you know, goaded these guys on to commit these contempts. And when we put this compilation of all the contempts that we could find on the tapes, the, uh, the, the trial judge agreed essentially with what we were arguing. And so what he did was he found them guilty of some of the contempts, but he refused to sentence them. Mm -hmm. So since he refused to sentence them, they didn't have any conviction. They didn't have a conviction. So it was his way of kind of, you know, negotiating. And, and just through. so I have the timeline clear, was this right after law school you, you went yes. out to do this? Yeah. So this was your first job after law school? Or was uh, this just a short period of no, time? No, I was still working with Morty, you know. And, Got it. 
Yeah, and then I went off after that. I I got a job with the public defender. Public defender where? In uh, Hudson County, Jersey City. And what went into that decision? Were you uh, thinking it was were work? You... I got a job as a lawyer. It was like you know mind-boggling. <laughs> <laughs> and after... somebody was going to willing to hire me and say I was a lawyer. Did, you know, did I mean, Morty I... encourage you to do that? Was that on the advice of Morty? Well, you... get a job. Yeah, well... I'm not going to continue to pay you anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that was that. Was, if that was what you call encouragement, yeah, I was encouraged. Any particular reason that you went to work, you know, for the government versus going to look for a private practice? Yeah, because I wanted to. I, I wanted to be a. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a. I wanted to be a courtroom lawyer. I. I. You know, I. I that's what I wanted to be. Uh, once I, you know, had gone through law school, and, and I really thought that'd be great to be. Be there fighting for people. Yeah, and, and obviously, based on your background, no thought about going to the prosecution side of things. Oh no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no! I never, never thought to do it, and I've never done it. Lee is a former prosecutor. Yeah, just... no, uh, no, I have a lot of respect for. Actually, I have a lot of respect for for prosecutors because I, you know, I think they they do something that defense lawyers don't do. You know, I mean, good prosecutors they they actually kind of weigh evidence. Yeah. And and have to make really kind of critical decisions, and and it's a real skill, and really a good prosecutor is you know worth his weight in gold or her weight in gold. I mean, because it's a really it's a really difficult task of doing something like that, of actually you know being objective, and having the capacity to you know make a reasoned decision based upon the evidence presented to you. I mean, yeah. it's really kind of cool. You you touched on something really important. You see the news stories about these hard-charging prosecutors. You watch TV shows like Billions. Right, right. And prosecutors are made out to be focused on one thing, right? A, a right. conviction. And you're right. right. In my mind also, a good prosecutor is someone who uses discretion, who weighs the evidence, who's objective, and makes who makes decisions based on what's fair, right. not based on you know securing a conviction. Right. So I think yeah. it's an important point to make. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a lot of the judges you'll find are, 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 are prosecutors. And, you know, it's, you know, and then, and then, you know, it's a question of you know who makes a, who makes a better judge. You know, an ex prosecutor or an ex defense lawyer. You know, and 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 in terms of background, in terms of background, you know, a, a good prosecutor probably has a better background for that position, in a sense, than than a defense lawyer who's taken a perspective. You know, of you know, here I got somebody def I'm defending, and I'm going to defend them, and that's it. I don't have to worry about right. You know, the negative in a sense. Yeah. So, so you first start at what was it? Is it called Legal Aid in Hudson County? Well, it was called Public Def Office of Public Defender. Office Public Defender. Yeah, so I did it so three years. So you start there, really and, and I know you long. tried a lot of cases there. A lot of cases. Uh, did, did they throw you right into the fire? Was there yes, training? Yes, yes. I apologized to the, my first trial. I apologized to the jury. <laughs> oh, no, I, no, I, no, I didn't apologize to them. I said I, I, my opening was uh, whatever it was. But at the end of the opening was, I hope you have a good time. <laughs> it was no, for right. I, I didn't have a suit. I had I had a uh, you know I had slacks and a and a sport coat. I, I didn't have any money. <laughs> I didn't have a suit my first trial. Um, it was you know it was scary. Did the judge say something like judges go out and get right. a suit? The judges, well, you know they they knew it was you know yeah you know uh, I mean the judges were very good um, and they knew you were you know I mean. You, you know, they knew that the, the the poor accused person was a, kind of a guinea pig. Do you remember it, walking out there the first time for your first trial? Was it nerve wracking? Do you remember yes, what no, it felt no, like? I, 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 I still have, uh, I, I still, when I'm in court, um, when I'm, like if I was trying a case, uh, my stomach turns. I, I argued in the Second Circuit last week on a case. You know, I was up all night <laughs> the night before. I, I it's... It hasn't gone away. It hasn't gotten better. I mean, I, I know I'm experienced now, and so I, I believe I can handle it. But but my uh, I, I don't know my my internal clock or whatever it is that's going on there is still in an uproar. Yeah, yeah. Well, a shot of vodka fixes that pretty easily. Yeah, no, no, it, it does the night before, <laughs> but it, but it, two hours later I'm awake. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember your first trial? I do. It was a bench trial. So it wasn't a jury trial. It was right. kind of a judge. It was uh, an individual who was in possession of a machete, and he threatened his neighbor with the machete. Mm. And did you get the desired result? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, when I started a public defender, they started us for the first six weeks. They put you down in juvenile. And um, 
and 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 you would go in in the morning and you get these complaints from these you know on these juveniles and it'd be these little kids like this right and I look at these complaints and I go I did this <laughs> sure <laughs> what what are these kids doing here you know and it was like it was scary in a way yeah. you know and they were these they were little people I mean they they didn't understand what was going on and I was representing them and I kind of didn't understand what was going on it was kind of really revealing yeah you know so. But, you know, it's all part of the, uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's just coming to the fore now, you know, is, is, you know, how you create or you, or you, or you, you mark these, these young kids at a very early age as, you know, as bad and as criminals when they're not. I mean, they're being kids and they're, you know, in a sense of largely victims of discrimination in terms of what is prosecuted. Where I mean, I, the, some of the stuff that we did in my neighborhood, we never got charged. I never got arrested. Yeah. And, and there's probably many times I should have been arrested. Not many, but a, a number of times. Right. <laughs> Statue of limitations. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, do you feel like the legal aid, the training that you got at the legal aid or the public defender's office was valuable for the next step that you took in your career? Oh yeah, no, the, the, the uh, I, was, I tried to, I think about almost 50 cases, felony cases, jury trials. In three years, that's insane. Yeah, yeah that's it was incredible. Insane. We just were, well, the, you know, they didn't have mandatory minimums in those days. So without the mandatory minimum, you know, a lot of times in New Jersey at that time, you could go to trial and the penalty wouldn't be increased. And, you know, you'd get basically the same sentence that after trial that you would get on a plea. And so there was a lot of incentive to try a case. And I kind of came in, you know, at that point in time, it was just before it all turned, but yeah. it started imposing mandatory minimums and extended terms and all those things. And so it was great training. I mean, it's fantastic training. I tried, by my, I think we had to do, you had to do about two years before you tried a murder case. I tried a couple of murder cases in my third year. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, so that's, it was great experience. Wild. In DA's offices in New York, you're not trying homicides until your 10th, 11th, 12th year. Yeah, no, year. no. I mean, so we had, I mean, it was pretty pretty incredible training. Yeah. So, so uh, with the caveat that it's very difficult for the defense to get a good verdict, do you remember how many victories you had of those? I know, I know I lost my first four or five trials. And there was another guy in my office, Jack O'Connell, who tried, he, we came in, he came in a couple of weeks before me, he won like his first five or six trials. <laughs> and I decided after losing my first four or five trials that I looked too young and, and people just weren't buying me. I grew a beard and I wound up getting one acquittal <laughs> after another. It was amazing. You stole my, my trick. <laughs> That's what I did too. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden I looked older and, and I, I was more credible. But I did learn. I did learn a, a really valuable lesson. I had. I had a, a, in, in about credibility and as being a lawyer and and being credible in the courtroom and how important it was. I had a trial, which was it was really a revealing trial. And I remember it to this day. I remember the defendant's name, but I won't say his name. He got acquitted, but it was a robbery, and he allegedly t had taken a, a two by four across somebody's skull and robbed them. And he kind of had this dirty blonde hair, and he was he was a white guy, and we go. This is Cooper. during the during the age of <laughs> what's is that or what? I know I, I was making I was saying maybe it was Cooper because you didn't no. give the name. So no, but he had blonde hair and yeah. all that stuff. But anyway, he so 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 we're we're going to trial in a case. There's two lessons in that case. It was really great. We we, we go to trial in a case, and we're doing jury selection. Now this is the age of in the in the early seventies. We we. Uh, my mid seventies, we were trying a lot of robbery cases. That was, you know, muggings, and right. that was the big, the big deal then. As opposed to like that crack now is, or whatever the current rage is, and um, we were trying a lot of robbery cases. And I probably had tried, you know, my fair share, four, five, six robbery cases. And I would always have, up until that time, I'd have a young African American client, you know, eighteen to twenty-one, twenty-two year old kid right. being tried. We go to jury selection. And, and the standard question right off the bat, is there anything about this case that you can't be fair? And there's a jury pool of about 40 people. They raise their hands, about six or seven of them. I can't judge this young man. I, I, I just couldn't believe it because uh, I had tried all these other cases with younger people that look much cleaner cut and much better than this kid looked because he was kind of washed out and uh, tough looking. 
and they couldn't judge him, this white kid, because he was so young. That's so interesting. And it was like mind-boggling to me. In that same trial, the first, the first, we have a uh, a police officer on the stand, and we had uh, a uh, 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 a retired like major captain or something like that. Uh, it was a it was an African American gentleman on the jury. He was like very you know you know authoritative and stern and right. all that. And he's on the jury for whatever reason, and and I'm questioning the cop and. And there's a police report, and there was something you know that wasn't in the police report that he's now saying on the stand, and I'm pounding on this police report of you know where is it, where is it in the, where is it in this police report? It's not there, right? And he's you know he's got to admit it. So at the end of the day, we you know we're outside the courtroom, and all of a sudden the judge calls us back in, and we go back in, and and this juror this. Major General is before the judge, and he's very upset. And he says, he says to the, the to the judge, why he's upset is he's upset because somebody was pounding on the Bible, right? And which you know, when 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 the witness was there, and somebody was somebody was pounding on the Bible, the judge apologizes to the to the juror, saying, you know. Whoever it was didn't mean to do anything. The prosecutor apologizes to the judge, right? I mean, to the to the to this juror that he apologizes if it was him. It was clearly not him. So I say, wait a minute. What what are we all apologizing for? I'm the one who did it, and I did, I didn't mean to do it or anything like that. But you know, I did it, so it's done. I said, but why do you? Why are you apologizing, right? So then the judge says, okay, he leaves him. And so then I move to, you got to get rid of this juror. You got to get him off the jury. He can't possibly be fair, you know, given his thoughts on, you know, my actions of, you know, cross-examining the cop and pounding on the Bible. And so judge refuses, of course, to exclude him. Case goes to verdict. He gets acquitted. It comes up to me at the end of the case. He said, you know why you won? He said, you were the most honest man in the courtroom <laughs> because I because I admitted it, you know. But but it taught me a really incredible lesson that you know you really have to be credible to the jury. You know, I mean, you all know it, but actually seeing it happen is kind of pretty Jur- jurors are paying attention to the most random right things, and that's why you have to kind of constantly comport yourself in the right way when you're right. in a courtroom because you have no idea what they're paying attention to. Right. No, no, it's scary. And I was never, you know, I don't think I was ever that kind of detail-oriented. You know, I, I remember one of my trials when I was prosecuting cases, a defense attorney was looking at her phone during oh. the jury's charge, the, the judge's charge to the jury, and I, I remember one of the jurors just glaring at her, glaring at her. And I said, there's no way that there's going to be an acquittal here because this one, the, the, the juror was a female. She'll never allow it based on how she's looking at this attorney right now. I had a case out in Warren County, New Jersey. This is in the early ages of cell phones. Yeah. And they had the medical examiner on the stand. And he takes two phone calls. Big prosecution witness. This guy, this is a retrial of a guy who had been... Given he the, took phone calls on the witness stand? On the witness. He took phone calls. The judge calls. didn't tell him to turn his phone off? He took, this is in the very beginning yeah. of, this is, I don't know what year it was, but the guy had been given the death penalty and the case was being retried. I got a, I, I, I handled the appeal and got a retrial and we're retrying the case. And I knew right then in there I won the case because the jury, you could see them. They were yeah. so turned off. It was more important that he takes a phone call then testify about the death of this, you know, victim, and the and the client there. It was unbelievable. One yeah. case. Same thing. Same thing when you're, I mean, dealing with clients, right? When you're talking to clients, they, clients notice every small, every detail also. Yeah. One of the things I, I've always done is, uh, in terms of those little details, is I, I know a lot of lawyers will do this. They'll, you know, you're you're in criminal law. You'll be in the courtroom, and they'll be buddy buddy with the prosecutor. That's a real no-no in front of the client, as far as I'm concerned, because then the client just sees that and say, you know, you're tight with him. You know, what about me? 
Right. And it's and it's a real and I've heard clients, you know, what I try what, I, what I try to do because I, I my my tact is I'm always friendly in the courtroom when I was prosecutor when me I was too. defense attorney. So I'll tell clients beforehand you're going to see me talk to the prosecutor, no. and I'm doing that for for strategic reasons. Right. So you know I try to right. explain that to the to the client beforehand because you're right that that can be a major turnoff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. I, I try to avoid it actually. Yeah. You get plenty of times to talk to the prosecutor. Right. Generally speaking. Paul, so I want to jump ahead. So what motivated your decision to leave the public defender's office and start your own practice? Uh, what motivated my uh, – um, uh, uh, after a while, I hated it. <laughs> uh, it what was, did you hate? It was kind of – what I hated, it was uh, kind of overwhelming. And um, back in the day, in the 70s, um, you would get assigned to where we were. You get assigned to a courtroom for three months, and you rotate, and you'd have a – you know, trial partner or two. And it became very clear to me that you kind of had a, it, it was all about working conditions. <laughs> you know, you, the prosecutors were, were the same. They, they got assigned to the courtroom and then you had this, you had the judge and you had the court clerks and you kind of all had to get along. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt that was really kind of not what I envisioned a lawyer to be. And if you were, you know, kind of, Wanted to go outside, kind of the norms, and 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 really advocate. It was it was somewhat of a you know restriction, and it kind of did just didn't feel right to me. Which is that's just me. That's my makeup. Is not to say that other people aren't doing it in a very honorable way, but I just felt it, it was restrictive. And then the other thing is that I kept getting bumped up in salary, and and I thought that's a major I, turnoff. Well, I thought I would, if I yeah, kept I taking that, it, I would get locked too. into it. That's what, <laughs> sure, I, I mean, and that's true. You know, yeah. I didn't want to get locked into it, and so I, I got out. Tell us about starting your own your own shop. Uh, I started my own shop in uh, whatever nineteen seventy eight seventy nine. I, I I needed uh, actually what I did was I, I I went to the city and I I worked with this lawyer uh, uh, Michael Kennedy was a big time you know criminal lawyer, and uh, he was he was he shared space with Jerry Leftcourt. And I was still practicing, still going strong. Michael passed away, you know, fairly recently, last year or two. But they had a really booming uh, uh, criminal practice. And uh, I went there, and I worked there for like a year, and then I started my own my own uh, kind of business out in New Jersey. Um, in that, uh, you know, I, in, in Michael's, I tried a bunch of, you know, drug cases in federal court. So, I had, you know, which was something I hadn't done. And that was kind of cool. Um, and did you feel like you were leveraging your experience from being a public defender at that point? And how were you, how were you going about getting business when you first started? Um, geez, it was all word of mouth in those days, you know, there was no internet. So, you know, if people recommended you, you got cases. Um, and then I went back to Hudson County, kind of where, you know, kind of, I had somewhat of a reputation. I was, I had a pretty good reputation, I think, in, in, in there as, you know, someone who really fought and cared and you know you know those kinds of things so you know i don't know business came my way do you think it was easier to get business before the internet yes well it was what i knew i mean you know i mean i i kind of um kind of wasn't on top of the internet actually and and you could see actually i used to have a lot of like in 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 new jersey i have a lot of municipal work you know which is bread and butter work you know and not really heavy lifting a lot of it. And and I have a lot of that. And that's really all internet-based. And that kind of dried up. I mean, I still got my, you know, murder cases and, you know, big criminal cases. But but the kind of those those little things that kind of, you know, keep the uh, lights on were, were drying up. And that was all a function of kind of not being, having a presence on, you know. I would think pre-internet, the cream kind of rose to the top. Everybody knew who the best defense attorneys were. Now you can position yourself on the internet as a as a great defense yeah, attorney, no, even yeah. if you don't have no experience, right? You can yeah, just, no. you basically can say whatever you want. Yeah, you can say whatever you want. You can produce videos. You can you can do all sorts of stuff. I had a I had a I had a case, a big case in New Jersey, it was the, the Jimmy Landano case. Jimmy was one of my all time favorite clients, but Jimmy had, you know, had been uh, uh, convicted and then his conviction overturned on suppression of evidence, and it, and it was it was it was he was accused of uh, killing a Newark police officer. And and after years of litigation and up and down in the courts and all that stuff, he was coming back for retrial. 
and I tried the case on Court TV, did gavel gavel coverage of it, and and it was you know it was kind of, it was a big deal, and um, it was I think it was the last trial they did uh, you know gavel gavel coverage on, and of course this is like right after is this right after OJ I guess or yeah, anyway, I thought I'd be a star. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but it didn't, I didn't know how to capitalize on it because, you know, we won. It was a great trial. You know, we had a party after. All the jurors came down. It was, you know, it was a good time. It was it was a really, really worked really well. And it was a centurion case. And, um, uh, but, you know, I didn't know how to capitalize on it. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really know. I didn't really have, I don't, I don't think I really had ever had a really, you know, great business sense of how to, how to market. So, you know. What was your favorite part of running your own practice? Uh, winning, <laughs> I guess. Good you answer. know, winning, winning, winning. Yeah, winning. You know, I mean, uh, you know, it always gratified you. You know that you know, uh, a, you know, a good result kind of, I, I think, gives you energy and makes a, you feel good about yourself. You was know? there a specific type of case as your career went on that you generally focused on? Well, I wound up doing more and more, you know, murder type cases. You know, I mean, murder cases, not murder type. Uh, murder cases, um, um, as I as as things progressed and kind of became almost all of that. And then most of the wrongful conviction stuff that I got into, which was I was doing during, you know, from 1980 on. I, I mean, I was all I always had a couple of kind of wrongful conviction cases that I was working on, and. Um, so, I mean, they, and they always were murder cases where people were, you know, I mean, they were cases where people were doing lots of time. Were you seeking those out or were those coming to you? Well, you know, I, I, I wanted to be a lawyer because I kind of wanted to, you know, I guess, you know, in some ways stop, you know, stop the oppression, right? Because it was this, this was the 60s. And so... You know, a wrongful conviction. I mean, you know, what what is it more oppressive than that? Um, so, I I had with Morty, I was learning some of that because he he was one of the first lawyers um, in the, in the country, I think, that did the, did those types of cases on a pro bono basis. And he had a couple of couple of them while I was you know clerking with him, and, and so I was kind of on the outskirts of that. I wasn't really dealing with those. But the, the, this, um, so I kind of did seek them out once I, you know, once I had the opportunity to have them. You know, like I met McCluskey because Morty was working on a wrongful conviction case, which is the Jimmy Landano case, which is the case I eventually tried years later. And, and he had this uh, 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 Neil Mullen, which became one of the more prominent uh, unemployment lawyers in in New Jersey and even nationally, he's really been very successful as an unemployment lawyer, as an employment lawyer, an employment discrimination lawyer. And he was handling the Jimmy Landano case and Morty didn't have the capacity to handle another one of these cases. And so he had taken a fee of $5,000 from McCluskey who had left the seminary to devote his life to freeing this guy he thought was innocent that he came across during the course of, you know, his training in, in visiting a, a psychiatric hospital in, uh, in, in New Jersey. And so he said, well, I take the case. Well, it was a $5,000 fee in those days. That was, you know, that was really a lot of money. And I took that case and we won. And, and then I, you know, created, I had, you know, I had a relationship with McCluskey. And then McCluskey decided that he was going to do this full time. So he had a, Let's, let's take a step back because we talked about McCluskey before we started recording. But for people who are listening, who was he? Um, he was. A, how he, did he fit into your career path? Yeah, he was a, uh, a, a he was at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, he had been a businessman, and uh, he was in his mid thirties, and he just wasn't, I guess, being fulfilled. And he went to he stopped working and was decided. I guess he was going to be a he was going to be a minister. And he was going to Princeton Theological Seminary. And as part of his training, they sent him off to the uh, psychiatric hospital in Trenton. And, and he's, you know, su supposedly administering to these, you know, inmates there. And he knocks on this one guy's door and the guy says to him, you know, I don't need a effing priest, I need a lawyer. 
and and then McCluskey took an interest in him, and it was a really incredible case that he that he he you know he came upon, and he started investigating it, and as he investigated it and started to unravel it, it was it was just this. It was this case of this mind-boggling amount of suppression of evidence going on in the Essex County Prosecutor's Office that he ultimately was able to, uh, you know, uncover and expose. And we we did a federal, I did a federal habeas corpus petition on it, and we won. And, um, you know, that was, then he decided he was now going to do this full-time as his ministries. So Centurion... In 1981, he formed it as a nonprofit and called it Centurion Ministries. And that started where he was going to, you know, uh, work to free uh, people that are innocent and imprisoned. And that's what he did. And so as a course, of, as he set that up and got it going, you know, he would hire me on as a contract lawyer. And so I, at the time, this one case was called, the, the inmate's name was Chiefy De Los Santos, and Chiefy knew two other guys that he swore were innocent in prison. This guy, Nate Walker, and a guy named Damaso Vega. And so we freed Chiefy, then we picked off Nate Walker, and we picked off Damaso Vega and freed them all in a course of about wow. three years. And so it was, you know, pretty incredible. I have Centurion's tagline, by the way. For those who don't need an effing priest, yeah, right. need a lawyer. <laughs> You could, so, you could have that one for free. Okay, cool. We'll market it. They'll, they'll send it out. As you as your practice continued and you started doing more work with Centurion, did you feel like your heart was sort of more in the wrongful conviction work and, and you were less interested in trying the murder cases? Uh, uh, no, not particularly. Um, I, I kind of enjoyed, I guess, the answer to your question before is I kind of enjoyed the lawyering the lawyering part of the practice of law and, and I really didn't enjoy the business and didn't have a, a particularly uh, you know aptitude a particular aptitude for it and so I, I just enjoyed the the lawyering part of it I mean I I one of the sustaining things in my practice over the years was I, I wound up being local counsel for Alcan Aluminum Corporation Alcan Aluminum Corporation was based in Cleveland at the time and they um, decided that they could save a whole bunch of money uh, instead of hiring big law firms to litigate their cases. That they could hire these solos and they could control them. And they they formed a little you know uh, a, a little firm within the within the corporation where they had five or six lawyers that kind of controlled in different areas of the country these solos. And so I wound up for about twenty twenty five years being the the uh, local counsel for them. And in some years, I'd made really, you know, really significant money. Other years, it was, you know, drips and drabs. But it kind of became a, you know, a foundation to my practice because I had it. And I kind of, I actually enjoyed it because, you know, I, I litigated, you know, some stupid, you know, civil cases that, you know, that in a sense weren't, were without pressure other than, you know, satisfying the client and the client was pretty easy to satisfy because the client kind of didn't really want you to do a whole bunch of you know needless discovery and just wanted you to be straight with them and that was pretty easy to do and it was a great it was it was a really good client and i'm still friendly with the people they've retired but i'm still friendly with them um because it was a nice relationship and you know and they cut cost how do they find you? Because obviously you had a very different background from what they well, probably were I, looking uh, for. Well, I, they found me because I formed the only time I had a partnership. I had a partnership for about nine months with, 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 uh, um, this Neil Mullen, who then went off became a, a employment discrimination lawyer, and and Neil's, I guess it was his ex brother in law, was within that little office, and so that's how I made the connection with okay. them. Okay. Did you have to spin yourself as having the ability to handle nope. these kinds of cases? Nope, 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 no. They, well, they just wanted you to, I mean, we were, I was, you know, by that time I was kind of experienced, you know, trial lawyer, you know, so it was, you know, uh, I, you know, and I had done a little civil here and there, you know, so, you know, I mean, I was running a general practice in the, in the sense, so, I mean, I did a little negligence work. You know, and uh, so I, you know, I knew I knew my way around civil in in New Jersey, not in New York, and uh, and I did it that way. 
Paul, I'm wondering if you have any advice for a young attorney who's interested in getting into wrongful convictions work. Do you believe that your experience as a sole practitioner and your experience as a, you know, back at the public defender's office, that all of that was beneficial for the work that you're doing today? Or do you think that someone can just get right into wrongful convictions work and start working at the Innocence Project if that's what they're really interested in? Well, you know, I I guess if you have enough, uh, I I think you could probably do it by, if you have enough training and ongoing responsibility initially. Um, I mean, I always thought, you know, and, and it kind of blinds me somewhat, I think, in terms of what you really need uh, to do it. I mean, I, I had the, the luck of, of getting trial experience and a lot of wrongful conviction work deals with, you know, you know what should have happened during a particular trial, you know, ineffective assistance to counsel, prosecutorial misconduct, that kind of stuff. And so I had a, I had a really uh, pretty good you know, foundation for it. And I'd done some appellate in my practice and, and I've done a fair amount of appellate work. So I had the combination of trial work and appellate work and I did them both. And most people in private practice don't do that. And I had the opportunity of doing it and I did it and I kind of enjoyed them both. I mean, I really kind of like doing appellate also because, you know, if you were getting paid and you could be in your office, you know, all lawyers that run offices know that if you're in your office, you're, you're better off than if you're in the courtroom because you know it's it's more economical and so so i so so i had that foundation but i i've seen you know well the innocence project in new york has lawyers that they came out of law school and doing wrongful conviction work they had a lot of training and they're really good lawyers so you know i i mean there are multiple ways of doing it i think you got you have to have the interest and you have to really be willing to devote a whole bunch of time um, and it's very detail oriented, and so I, you know, I think I think someone coming out of law school could could do it if if they are inclined to do it. But I, you know, you got to put in the time. I remember when I was a, a third year law student, uh, you know, like you know, uh, clerking for uh, Morty Stavis and thinking I could do this, and I mean, I was delusional. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't do it, you know, but I thought I could, and so I mean, it's. You know, realizing, you know, what you need to be able to do it is, and and I I think someone graduating uh, this month could could do it if they are willing to start and learn it. It's, you know, it's 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 pretty. Um, it's become a pretty specific field and a specialty, and so since it has become a, a you know a specialty, you know there's. You know there are parameters to it. You know you got to know post conviction. You got to know, you know what happens at a trial. You know what's supposed to happen in a trial. I mean, and 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 what lawyers are supposed to do. A lot of it's knowing what a lawyer is supposed to do and trying cases and knowing what lawyers, you know, are supposed to do to represent somebody is a big advantage. You have to understand how a trial is supposed to play out in order to recognize right. where things went wrong when you're reading a transcript. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I read transcripts, and you know, and I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, a lot of times I can spot like, wow, this is really wrong, and and I don't know that you know, first year person, I don't think could spot that, but you know, you never know. I don't know. I don't know what tra- I, you know. I haven't been to law school in forty years, so I don't really know <laughs> kind of what the trading is anymore. But you know, it, it's probably more. It's probably more. You know, I don't uh, think it's practical. Changed. I don't think it's changed really? that much. Really, in forty. Yeah. Well, it's starting to change, but yeah, but, I thought it was a little more practical now. Yeah, I mean, it's it, they're starting. Some schools are starting to shift in that direction, but it's a it's a glacial movement. Yeah, that right. Way. Yeah. Well, some of these schools have you know these you know innocence projects are in the school, so. You know, or they use students to investigate stuff. Like Northwestern has a big program on that. So I mean, I don't know. I, I would assume that you know the clinical be- the clinical programs are picked up. Yeah. So there's there's yeah. a vast array of clinical programs that you can be involved in in yeah. school, and that's where you pick up a lot of your practical school yeah. skills. Well, I, I had a I had I was in the, at Rutgers. I was in the constitutional litigation clinic, so that was really appellate stuff. So I got some of that, you know, and I had. The, 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 one of the professors was this, I don't know if you know him, but it was Arthur Kanoy. And Arthur Kanoy was really one of the more prominent kind of like, you know, left, lefty lawyers in the country. He was really, uh, uh, it was Arthur and uh, Bill Kunstler and, and Morty Stavis who formed the Center for Constitutional Rights. 
And so, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, I had the benefit of, I had like, and he was, he taught at Rutgers. I had, I don't know, like 30 credits for Arthur Canoy. And and it was, you know, you, you would, you would go to class with Arthur Canoy and you come out of the class and you were convinced that, you know, you could change the whole world, you know? I mean, he was really inspiring. When he argued United States versus the United States District Court, he argued it to the, you know, it was the Burger Court in those days. And it was like, you know, thought to be really right wing. And, they, you know, they had the Minnesota Twins and it was before Blackburn kind of, you know, you know, made his mark and 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 thought it was really hostile court. And he 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 spoke for, I don't know, whatever the time limit was. And he went over it. Not one question. He just lectured them. And they won the case 9-0. And during that argument, Arthur Canoy said, Arthur Canoy said, under this law that Nixon was proposing where he could, he could uh, tap and, and surveil uh, domestic uh, dissidents without a warrant, he, he argued that under this law, you could, you could be bugging the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And right at the same time, they were breaking into the Democratic <laughs> National Committee headquarters. It was right around Watergate, 1972. Crazy. Yeah, so. All right, Paul. Well, that was a great conversation. Um, I guess last question is, where can people find more information about Centurion? Uh, on their website. I, I know they're on Facebook, which uh, I'm, I'm not a <laughs> participant, but they're, they're, I think we have a, a, you know, a digital presence. Um, you know, and you know, we welcome any inquiries or... Uh, or any and all conversations, um, you know, we're always looking for help. Um, so we have a we have a great volunteer base, uh, and and we really use them. You know, uh, they're really prominent in in kind of working up cases for us. So, um, you know, how can how can law students get involved for the law students who are listening right now? Uh, they can write to us, and uh, we'll certainly talk to them and see if we can work them in. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Hey, much thank appreciated. you. It was fun. Thanks.